you would take your copies of the scripture with me and turn over to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, we are going into probably one of my favorite portions in chapter 1. This text before us is often referred to as the Magnificat because in the Latin text of Luke, that is the very first word, and it's the word to magnify or, or exalt. The text we're going to read is verses 46 through 56, where Luke records this hymn sung by Mary. Verse 46, we read these words. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath shown strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. Let's pray together. Once more, Lord, we are glad to gather together, for we know that indeed you have given to us yet another day to praise your name. And even as we look at this song of Mary, how it is a model for us of what our exuberant praise should be to you. I pray that you would encourage our hearts with it, that you would challenge us in ways in which we are not living out this reality, and that most importantly, Lord, your name would be exalted not only in our time together in the word, but also as we go into this week seeking to give our exuberant praise to you. We pray all of this now in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. The hymn before us is one of four in the birth narrative here recorded in Luke. And this one, as I mentioned, is referred to as the Magnificat because of the fact that Mary begins her song by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord. The reason why we read 1 Samuel chapter 2 is because if you will have noticed after Wolfgang read it and then I read it, this passage in Luke 1, you'll notice that they're very similar. And I think that there is something going on in Mary's mind as a Jew who, even though she would not have studied formally in the Old Testament scriptures, nevertheless, she was, I'm sure, very familiar with them. And for her, as a young woman, the song of uh, of 1 Samuel 2 is probably one that she memorized because Hannah is one who modeled what every Jewish woman wanted, which was someone who would raise not only children, but specifically children who would follow 
the Lord. So in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's hymn starts out, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And you'll notice that Mary starts out her hymn, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. The two hymns are very, very similar, and I believe that Mary's is a pattern, really, of the one that Hannah sang in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But I'm not preaching 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's hymn. I'm preaching Luke 1, Mary's. One of the things that we notice in the text of Scripture, when the Lord blesses somebody, particularly with children, that often there is a hymn of blessing accompanied with it. Or, for example, when David is saved from his enemies, when he experiences the salvation of the Lord physically from his enemies, that in the Psalms we have recorded hymns that he wrote as expressions of praise to God, which really made me think about this entire text. And this text is rich with theology, but I think the one focus I want us to get out of it today is the fact that Mary's response to God and the joy that she found in him, particularly surrounding the the birth or the coming birth of her child, her response is to overflow with praise. Our hearts as Christians should be hearts overflowing with praise and joy. Regardless of what the United States government is doing, regardless of whether or not the world around us is at peace or at war, as Christians, we have every reason to respond with exuberant praise and joy to God. Mary lived in a time that was very turbulent as well. In fact, you could probably look at every single time in history and know that at some point, somewhere in the world, there's some kind of turmoil, some kind of upheaval happening. For Mary, she was living under a Roman regime with wicked rulers. She could have had every reason to say, well, thanks for the the kid and the miraculous way that I'm having him, but I don't really have any reason to rejoice because everything around me is a problem. She could have said that. And if she had, she would have really been prefiguring much of what liberal theologians have said in the recent several hundred years. Because there are people who are looking at Scripture, and particularly since the Enlightenment, they look at Scripture and they see what it says and they think, really, this is kind of an outdated book. This is a book filled with myth. Because we now know that there are scientific explanations for everything, And so the things that people would attribute to God in the past somehow have an explanation, that there is a scientific explanation for those things. And so what we really must do is we must look at the data that we have before us, the things that we have a hard time explaining, and look for a rational explanation for them. And ever since the Enlightenment, that has been the focus of humanity. But the problem for the Christians were were manifold, Because on the one hand, they had this book that for millennia has been the explanation of God's working in humanity. But now the world around them is saying, we have now realized that there are scientific explanations for everything. And we know that miracles can't have happened. So things that Jesus claimed to have done or things that the Bible claims were done by Old Testament prophets or even the apostles in the New Testament, we know they could not possibly have happened. Because those kind of things don't happen in the natural order. 
And what Christians then were faced with was a crisis of whether or not they were going to believe the word of God at face value or whether they were going to compromise it and determine whether or not there were certain aspects of it that were true and others that may have not been. Fast forward then to the early 20th century, or really even before then. The Christians, now having a couple centuries of explaining the world around them with scientific data and having natural explanations and having people in their educational institutions talking about things like, there's no such thing as miracles, the Bible's miracle stories couldn't possibly be true, therefore, now the Christians are saying, okay, if that's true, what should we really be doing? Because we've been told that the Bible teaches us that we're really bad, but really I think that mankind isn't that bad, so what we need to do is we've got to reform mankind. We've got to start making mankind do better things. And so the mission of the church changed from sharing the gospel to people telling the church, you need to start doing things like making sure the poor have money, making sure the hungry have food, making sure the homeless have shelter. That's the mission of the church. And if that is the mission of the church then yeah, I would dare say that Mary, if, if that was what her whole mission in life should have been all the way back 2,000 years ago, yeah, she probably should have not been praying this song of praise. She rather should have been getting to work and doing things about changing the, the world around her. But she doesn't. Mary, in spite of the world around her, in spite of the paganism around her, in spite of the war and all of the atrocities being committed around her, sees what God has done in giving her this child, and rather than focusing on the ills of the world, she says, I will exalt and praise my God. And I believe that's instructive for us today. Not that there aren't important things for us to be doing in the world, not that there aren't things that we can do as Christians that will help our fellow humans. The most important thing we should be doing as Christians is exalting God, for therein is the reason we were created, is to exalt and praise him. So I believe Mary's Magnificat is a model for us of what exuberant praise looks like. And I think we as Christians should be praising God in the same way. And while there's a lot here in this, these uh, 10 verses, I'm only going to narrow down the focus to four things that I think we can generally say Mary does in her praise, and that we as Christians as well should be doing in our praise to God. Because I believe that Mary, as a lowly young woman in ancient Near East Israel, recognizes that God has not only exalted her, but has brought her wonderful joy. And in the same way, we as lowly sinners who have experienced the mercy and kindness of God have been given the joy of our salvation in Christ, and that God brings joy to us lowly so that we can bring exuberant praise to him. So what are the four ways in which our praise to God should be manifested? Well, first of all, it should be personal. That hopefully is obvious. That's the no-duh statement of the day. Mary begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, in verse 49, she says, For he who is, money, has, is mighty has done great things for me. This is a very personal thing to Mary. God has, in a personal way, 
expressed his blessing and kindness to her. And she's overwhelmed at that thought. That God should notice me and be kind to me and gracious to me. It's, it's very much the opposite of what our American context is. Every commercial you see on television or every ad on YouTube or on whatever streaming platform you have is telling you it is all about you. But it's done so with a sense of pride. You deserve this. You deserve this new item. You deserve this fast food. It's all about you with a sense of pride, but Mary's personal realization of God's kindness to her leads her to experience, as we'll see in a moment, a humility that God should be so gracious and kind to me. I think it's exactly what the hymn writer said when he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. That humility that God should be so kind and gracious personally to her, a lowly first century young woman in Jewish Israel, had seen the kindness of God, and so she says, my soul magnifies him. And I believe that that word is intentional in her hymn. The very depths of her being is what she's communicating. You and I might not recognize or speak in terms because this isn't in our culture or even in our common vocabulary. But when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she is speaking with a depth that cannot be communicated any other way. There's no other way you can communicate the reality of your being. When you try to describe, I heard an illustration once of, of, a, of a professor who, was, who noticed that one day this couple that had been dating in the class, that all of a sudden she walks in and she has a ring on her finger. And she is just glowing and excited. And they sit down and, and the professor said, said to her, hey, I, Mary, I noticed that you're, you're, you're smiling. What's, what's the, the big occasion? And she showed everybody the ring and said, I, I'm, in, I'm engaged. I'm engaged to John. And the professor said, that's, that's wonderful. Well, t tell me, why did you say yes to John? Why? She said, well, because I, I love him. And the professor said, okay, that's, that's good, but why do you love John? And she said, well, because he's, he's handsome and he's very smart, and, and he's, he's very kind. And, and the professor said, wow, that's, that's fascinating, but, but I mean, over there is Bert. Bert's pretty good looking, and he's pretty kind, and he's, I know his grades, he's pretty smart. Why not him? And she says, well, well John is, and she starts to list out other things that that she appreciated about John and that, that she loved about John. And the, the professor said, well, all those are great and good and that's wonderful, but, but Bert's got the exact same characteristics. And on and back and forth they go to the point where this, this poor girl is getting really frustrated because it seems like the professor is kind of diminishing her beloved 
and elevating this other guy and making her seem like a fool. And, and finally, after the professor keeps pressing her, she finally says, well, I, I love him just because, because he's John. And the professor said, that's it. When you finally get down to it, there's something you can't quite explain other than it's him. That's who he is. There's, you can try to isolate specific individual things, but ultimately there's just something about him, his name, that communicates his being and why you love him. When Mary cries out, my soul, the depths of who I am, magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She will list some characteristics of him, but ultimately the first thing she says is, I magnify God and I rejoice in God because of who he is. I can try to isolate specific characteristics about him, but ultimately it's just him. I love him. And I, can't, I cannot communicate any other word about me and everything of who I am other than saying, my very soul magnifies God. When you think about yourself, there's no greater depth you can go to than to describe yourself by saying, I love you with all of my soul. Because it's the deepest part of who you are. Mary's personal praise of God is expressed at the deepest possible level. Is that your praise of God? Is that how you came to church this morning? As we sang these wonderful hymns, how firm a foundation and rock of ages cleft for me. I fear too often our praise of God is more shallow than we would like to admit. That we are not coming in and expressing the very depths of our souls and praise to God here together. Which is sad for me if that is the way I come to church. Because often the deepest possible moment of communion I have with the Lord is together with his people. If, if I'm coming to that moment not coming with a depth to my praise to the Lord. What does that say about the rest of my week when it's just me one-on-one with the Lord? What about your praise to God? He has exalted you if you have trusted Christ, Jesus Christ, as your Savior from your sins. You were once blind, but now you see. You were a wretch that was saved by the kindness of God. Ought that not cause us daily to marvel at the wisdom and the mercy and the kindness of our God so that we too, like Mary, respond with a deep praise to him. Her soul, she says, I magnify him. And he has done great things for me. Is that not true for us? God has done wonderfully great things for us most importantly in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but what other things has God done for you? How often have you had it where you were looking for something, you lost something in your house, and you're looking and you're looking and you've been looking for 45 minutes and you can't find it, and it's almost like it's a last resort. Like, okay, Lord, I, I've done everything I can. I guess I'm going to have to now leave it up to you. Can you help me find this? And then instantly, it's like the Lord brought to mind something that, that you remember that, 
you'd done with that thing, or all of a sudden you just happened to find that thing. How often is it seeming as though we see only the great things that God has done and don't understand the little things as well? He has done it for us, though, and that is the personal praise that Mary gives. A second way that Mary models praise, exuberant praise to God, is that not only does she does it in a personal way, this is her praise to God, but it's also in a reverential way. Please notice with me what she says there in verse 49. And this phrase is probably my favorite in the entire passage. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary does not come willy-nilly with her song of praise to God. She comes with an understanding that the character of God is altogether holy. And her praise to God is reflective of that holy separate character. It is with reverence that she comes before him. For his mercy is on those who fear him. She says, you you extend kindness and mercy to those who fear you with a reverential awe. When we stand before God, I think sometimes it's wonderful to think of God as our Abba, or in our modern vernacular as daddy, because we can come to him in a very intimate way, but that doesn't mean a casual way. Here, our fear of God is a reverential awe. I've I've often referenced this book, and if you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it. It's The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And in one of the last chapters of that book, he talks about holy space. And he talks about in the Old Testament how the tabernacle and then the temple was the holy space, as it were, because it represented the presence of God with men. And how today, it seems as though we've lost that sense. And there's a theological reason in part for that, because now we have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We are the temple. But nevertheless, there is still this separateness, this God is the creator and we are the creature, and there is a distinction there. And even though God is omnipresent and everywhere, nevertheless, there are senses in which we can We can be in a holy space that gives us more of a sense of the reverential fear and awe of God that we should have. And in that book by R.C. Sproul, he comments about how there are people who will go into these great cathedrals. I don't know if you've ever been in a cathedral. I've been in a large old church building. I don't know if that I'd call it a cathedral, but in a large old church building, both in Boston and in New York City. And it's really fascinating that when you go into those spaces... That from the most religious person to the most pagan person you can think of, all of them instinctively, when they go inside, speak in hushed tones. There's something about being in a place that is considered holy that we naturally want to go into it with a reverential perspective. I believe that we as the church would do a better service to the body of Christ if that is the way we viewed the presence of our God. Not that we cannot come boldly before the throne of grace. Not that we cannot cry, Abba, Father, when we bring our praise to him. But he is still a king. And he is still holy. 
And Mary says, holy is his name and his mercy is on those who fear him. She acknowledges that there is a reverence that she has for this one whom her soul magnifies. And then a third way in which she models for us, I believe, the praise that we should come to God with is that she does so in humility. She says over and over again that he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant, that she cannot understand why he would look at her in a society in which there were these different castes, this was amazing to her. That God should set his affection and gaze upon her because she believed herself unworthy of that. Sometimes it seems to me like we come to God's presence as if we are worthy of it. That God is getting somebody good when he got me. But Mary says, he's regarded my lowly estate. He saw me as though I were down in the gutter and he gave his attention and affection to me. You probably remember those of you who were married when that significant other was giving you attention. And the question perhaps that went in your mind is, why, why would she want me? Why would he pursue me? You felt that sense of unworthiness in a way because he could have pursued some other girl over here who's way better looking or has way more gifting and skills in other areas or she could have gone for that guy over there the star sports player or this straight a student she could have but she she chose to say yes to me he chose to pursue me there's that sense of humility you feel that somebody would set their affection and attention on you. That's exactly what Mary's doing here. Why would God, of all of the Jewish women here, choose me, a lowly peasant girl, as it were? She had no standing in society, and yet God had chosen her. And in fact, he has done great, mighty things for me. And he's shown his arm. And what she acknowledges is not only that, that he exalts the lowly, but that he abases the proud. For notice what he says in verse 51. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. In verse 53, the rich he sent away empty. There's all of these other people who are in the eyes of the world considered successful, considered higher class, upper class. But God takes those and says, those mean nothing to me. He is able to abase those who are abounding and who are proud. Is that not what God illustrated in the life of Nebuchadnezzar? With Nebuchadnezzar, he looks around and he sees his kingdom. He says, look at this great kingdom which my hand hath wrought. And God gives him this illness that causes him to be insane for seven years until he lifted his eyes to heaven and he acknowledged the Holy One. Or the king in the book of Acts 
who everyone said is speaking with the voice of God, and he didn't give glory to God, and he ends up dying of worms. God is able to take the rich, the, the people of the up, upstanding class, if you will, and able to abase them when their whole focus is on themselves rather than on the King of kings and Lord of lords. But conversely, with that, he looks at the humble, the lowly, and he looks on them with kindness. And it's, she says, his mercy is on those who fear them, which really is a way of saying who humble themselves, who recognize him as the Holy One, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and who know that they do not deserve that. And in verse 52, she says, he has exalted the lowly, the humble. She's not saying what the Marxist or socialistic people would be saying, that somehow there is a virtue in just being poor, that, that there's something, if you're poor, you are automatically virtuous and oppressed. That's not what she's saying. She's saying that there are people who are with humility in a station in life that, that other people might ignore. And God has taken those people who have humbled themselves before him and in, at no fault of their own been in a situation in life where they are in the eyes of the world, unfortunate. And God exalts them. Is that not what Jesus Christ himself taught? Let him who desires to be first be last. And in verse 54, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. This is the fourth way in which we praise God, that our praise should be historical. And I didn't really have a good word to use besides that. But what I mean by historical is that Mary rehearses what God has done in the past as a basis for her current and present exuberant praise. She looks at what God has done in verse 55. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. My praise of God is not in a vacuum. Even though I said that she has a personal praise of God, nevertheless, it is not a proud personal praise. She understands that God has shown his kindness to her, yes, but he has also shown his kindness to others. And in recognition of that, she says, I understand that this is repeatedly what my God is like. He has shown his kindness to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, and they didn't deserve it either. They were probably just as overwhelmed at the kindness of God as this first century lowly Jewish girl felt. Her praise is historical because she knows that God's mercy, his kindness, extends not just to her, but to many others, both in the future and in the past. In the past, it was through the, the people who followed the Lord, who were obedient to him, who with eyes of faith looked forward to the day when the Messiah, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3, would come. But Mary also knows that God's history is currently being written and that there would be centuries in advance of people like us who would see the kindness of God in the past and who would see from her example a model of praise that looks at what God has done in the past 
how he is working in the present and how he will work in the future. Should not our praise be the same way? Our praise should be personal, but it should not be egocentric. It should not just be about me. My praise of God should be with the reality that God should focus on me. In all of the people of human history, he should love me. He should give me the chance to hear the gospel and respond. He should bless me with a wife and children. He should bless me with a job and a ministry. And that maybe in the future, my children will see that same kindness he's shown to me and it will move them to praise God in their present and for their future children to see how God has blessed them. And it's this perpetual cycle of praise to God. Our praise has to be historical. We cannot just be stuck in the present or else we fall into the trap of being egocentric, saying this is all about me. It's not. It's all about God. So our praise, I think, should be like Mary. It should be personal, that God should focus on me and show kindness to me. It should be reverential. His name is holy, and we should fear his name. It should be humble, that God exalts the humble and the proud he's able to abase. And it should be historical, because our praise is not in a vacuum. Our blessing and kindness from God is not in a vacuum. There has been a history of God's kindness repeated over and over again, and now we are just one step in that historical act of God and our model of praise should be that same thing that other people in the future look to. So let me just just say as a side note here, parents, grandparents, your children are watching you. They see how you treat God. They see how you don't talk about him if you don't. Your model of praise or lack thereof is being watched very closely by your children and grandchildren. Is your soul, the depths of who you are, magnifying your God? Is your spirit rejoicing in God, your Savior? One final thing that I will close with, and that is that Mary says there in verse 7, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Did Mary know that the child within her would die on a cross? No, she did not. Mary's not omniscient and not eternal. So she did not know that the baby that she would bear would 33 years later die on a cross. But she did know this, and I believe this is something that God was giving to her in Revelation as she is writing this hymn down. She understood that Jesus, her child, was also God, her Savior. And I believe her expression of praise to God is an expression of praise because she, as a sinner, knows she needs a Savior. And so I appeal to you today not to walk away from this service rejecting the God who is the Savior of Mary and who is the Savior of every person in here who by faith places their belief in Christ that you should not leave this place without first expressing that same faith in him. For our God is holy, and we are not. We are sinners. We are the lowly. We do not deserve the kindness of God. Yet in kindness, Luke records for us in the rest of his book how God worked about 
the righteous life of this child that Mary would bear. And now in his righteous life, he would keep the holy law of God perfect and how he would be judged and all of the wrath of God poured upon him as he hung on the cross for me and for you. And he rose again three days later, even as he told his disciples he would, and told all of his disciples for the last 2,000 years, keep telling this message, I am the Son of God, and believing in me, you will have life through my name. So his disciples started spreading that message, and their followers who believed that message started following, that mes- following and spreading that message till 2,000 years later, your parent, your Sunday school teacher, your pastor, your grandparent shared that message with you. And I'm sharing it now as well, 2,000 years later, with the appeal that you would believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, and that believing you would have life in his name so that you too could sing with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that your kindness should be bestowed upon undeserving sinners who instead ought to bear the fierceness of your wrath. But we have every reason to have joy and hope because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for any person in this room who cannot say with Mary, my soul and my spirit rejoice in God, my Savior, that any person in this room who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as his or her Savior would do so today. For as the scriptures say, today is the day of salvation. And Lord, for those of us who have embraced Jesus Christ, this child that Mary bore, and who have believed in him for eternal life, Lord, help our praise not to be shallow. Take your spirit that is within us and move us greatly to the very core of who we are and cause that our praise would be personally deep, would be marked by humility, that we would have a reverential awe for who you are and that we would remember that just as you were kind In saving those people in history past, so are you saving people in history present and will continue to save people in history future until our Savior comes. Help our praise to be deep and lasting, for we ask it in the one who is God our Savior, in his name, Jesus. Amen.